Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster, and you're listening to Out on the Fringe, a weekly podcast of awesome serialized science fiction written by amazing authors, performed for you by professional narrators, and brought to you by SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Chapter 16 Why don't you pull up a chair, then? Jamie pointed to the cluster of office chairs nearby, and I pulled two over to the fire. It's all right, I told Captain. Take a seat. He slowly lowered himself, never taking his eyes off the other man. I had my gun pointed at Jamie, ready to put a bullet into his belly if he made any sudden moves or said the wrong thing. Thanks for the welcoming party, Captain said. No hard feelings, Jamie said. You boys set off a hell of a lot of my early warning systems, tell you that much. I raised my eyebrows at him. What do you mean? He stretched his leg and rubbed his knee, where the arthritis was bad. Place is wired with thermals. Knew you were here the minute you got down to the subway platform. Figured you guys split off into two groups, heavily armed. Meant you were trespassing. Where's my daughter? I asked, getting down to business. Jamie was surprised, but it slowly dissolved as he understood our roles. He had his secrets, and I had mine, but they had rarely ever conflicted as badly as they did in that moment. He appeared to be honestly confused. His eyes shifted from me to Captain, then to our guns, and something inside him squared away and settled. He grew pensive. Now wait, Jonah. You think... He looked around at the nothingness of the room surrounding us, then held up empty hands, surrendering everything. She's not here. What did you do with her? My voice was drawn and ragged, my mouth a dry well where my tongue was too thick. A hot fuse of anger was rushing up, and I forced myself to tamp it down. I wanted to shoot him right then and there. I don't know what you're talking about. Jamie, I said, I'm begging you. I have a mind to do some awful things here. Please tell me what I want to know. I'm telling you, she is not here. I stood, lashing out before I even really knew what I was doing. Violent instinct took over. I slammed the gun down hard against his face, breaking his nose and splitting open his lips. Where is she? I yelled, hammering the gun down across his face again. Something broke away in his mouth beneath the butt of the gun, and I hit him again before he could answer. I kept hitting him, again and again, until I was worn out. By the time my arm grew tired and the gun sagged at my side, loose in my hand, his face was torn to ribbons. His medicines were slow and overworked from the beating, but they were doing their job in keeping him conscious. His eyes were far off, struggling to focus. She wanted out, Jamie said finally. You fuck. What did you think, huh? You think I killed her? She wanted out across the border. She was talking about Seattle. I know she fucking talked to you about it. Do you remember at the bar? She talked about it. Asked me for help because you fucking disappeared on us. You fuck. A pool of blood grew between his feet and he hunched over, trying to get his head between his knees because he was sick from the gore he'd had to swallow to keep talking. 
He spit three of his front teeth into the puddle, then used his shirt to cover his face and sop up some of the mess. I remembered Mesa talking about Seattle and the open-door policy they were testing. So where is she? You set her up with a coyote? He nodded and then looked me in the eyes. His were cold and hard, the blue of ancient ice. Alice, she, he said. The name on his lips ran through me with an electrifying jolt. I stepped back, practically tripping over the chair I'd been sitting in, and fell onto the seat. Alice? We stared at each other for a long moment. Jamie reached up to his nose, gingerly touching the swollen flesh and wincing in pain. Why don't you tell me what brings you two here, and let's work on filling in the blanks. What do you say? Captain shrugged, bored, pale. Whatever, man, he said. This all ends the same. Jamie hitched his shoulders, then sat back, trying to get comfortable and act cool. But it was just that, an act. He was a good performer. He had fooled me for a good long time. But I told him everything. About Captain's attack on the reclamation site. About being turned over to Alice Shi and her memorialist shop. About the convergence web and what I knew about his time in the military. About Alice putting the green light on him and how we were there to put a bullet in his head. Then I admitted I'd been wrong through all of it, thinking we were on the side of the angels, killing our enemies in the PRC. All we were doing was killing innocent people in massive freeway murders and using little girls to detonate bombs in crowded marketplaces to send a message. We weren't saviors. We were monsters. I told him how badly I wanted my daughter back and how much I wanted to get the fuck out of Los Angeles with her safe and sound. Jamie listened and even gave some nods of sympathy. Certain pieces of information were gelling for him as the dots connected. He rubbed at his arthritic knee, and when I finished my story, he asked if I would help him stand so he could move around a bit. Ass is getting numb from these seats, he said. He promised no funny business and was good on his word. He strolled slowly, never stepping beyond the shallow reach of the fire's glow, and stretched his legs. His face was an ugly mask, his eyes lost in thought. Well, he said, mulling over his words, that's Alice Sheaf for you. What do you mean? She works in layers, man, always. There's always some kind of giant web with her, like that convergence crap she uses. She's an information broker, but it ain't ever easy. He shuffled back to his chair and sat. When he had gathered the strength to talk, his story, or maybe confession was more accurate, took him a long time to get through. Yuan, the Zhongshang who had been at the Berkeley Massacre before giving up his citizenship to join the PRC, had seen Jamie, when he was still known as Samuel Hodgson, gunning down the students there. Jamie had no way of knowing that, or what information was in Yuan's head. He confirmed that Alice Shi had farmed the job to him and put a green light on the Shang. After I went missing, when I was kidnapped by Captain, Shi had approached Jamie with the information she had learned. She was willing to keep the information a secret for a prize, for Mesa. The boy your daughter was with, he's Tong, works for Alice, Jamie said. I recalled the young Asian man she'd been with at Fingerlings, but his features were vague and murky. I doubted that I would recognize him if I ever saw him again. So you handed her over? Alice said she would help get the girl out of here, help set her up in the Northern Territories. So you just gave her my daughter? I honestly thought you were dead, he said. And it was a small prize. 
With what she knows now, she could have handed me over to the PRC or even the UN and I'd be fucked. So, yes, I gave her your daughter. Then what happened? I asked, bothered by the shifting landscape of whom I could trust and whom I couldn't. Who was lying to me and using me? Jamie, Alice, and Captain all swirled around in my head, bit players using one another, using me. And Mesa was right there in the middle of it all. Jamie nodded toward Captain. Then this little band of brothers attacked a camp. Knew a hell of a lot about our layout. Think they came there to kill me, probably on Alice's orders. Huh? Captain sat there, not saying a word. I knew the information he'd used to attack Echo Park had come from me, but I said nothing. So after that, Jamie said, I figured all bets were off. I know Alice plays the middle, supporting me, supporting him, and never shall the three meet. She's funny that way, but after the park got attacked, I'm thinking she sent the dogs after me to wrap up any loose ends. That's when I started thinking about the Shang job again. And you sent your men after her at the restaurant? And learned you were still alive, he said, and working for her. What does she want with Mesa, I asked. Jamie said nothing, lost in thought again. Insurance, Captain said, surprising both of us. Layers, right? That's what you said earlier. You do one on her, she do one on you. He looked squarely at me. Then she lies to you, gets you to do her dirty work, holding some cards back from the deck. Holding your daughter, making you think she's here with him. And what, hoping I'll put a bullet in him, no questions asked? Captain thought about that point, then said, Yeah, maybe. No, I said, I don't buy it. I looked back on my time with her and thought about the high levels of manipulation these two were talking about. There was a small pang in my heart when I carried the implications all the way through. I certainly didn't love Alice Shea, but we definitely made a connection. Over the last few days, our relationship had deepened into... What, exactly? Friendship, maybe, or at least something more comfortable than mutual respect. How'd you get so old? I asked Jamie. His face got all screwed up from the left field question. Jacked up the medicines, he said. Reverse engineered them. They keep you young and healthy when they're working right in one direction. Tinker around with their freaks and jury rig the programming. And they do something else. Right. Then it hit me. I'd been so fucking blind. The medicines coursing through my body. What had she done to them? To me? I thought about the euphoria I felt when I was around her and the heightened awareness I had when we were together. I was suddenly less sure that my reactions to her had been natural. I wondered if she had been playing with my emotions by making me dull to the world around me, more eager to believe her and more eager to please her. Or was that paranoia taking hold? After all the talk of conspiracies and Alice's manipulations, I wasn't sure what to think or believe anymore. Why is she holding Mesa? I asked. It's not so she'd have something to hold over me to get me to kill you. She wants her for a reason, something that's above all of this. What is it? I paced, drifting in and out of the pool of dying light. I could feel the weight of their eyes on me. Captain at least seemed interested, if noncommittal. I kept thinking about layers upon layers. Go back to General Yuan, Jamie said. Did you look carefully at everything in that memory chip you got? The truth was I hadn't. All I had cared about was the rush it gave me. I'd used it so I could get fucked up. Alice had told me Yuan had abused her stable of prostitutes, and that part had been true enough. But those were surface details. 
I needed to peel back the layers of everything she had told me in order to find the truth buried at the core of it all. Go to that filing cabinet. Jamie pointed to a cluster of them arranged between a few desks. Third on the left, middle drawer. The drawer slid open with a grating, metallic squeal. I found a cluster of chips inside, including the copy of Yuan's that I had made for Jamie. My mouth watered at the thought of a drink when I recalled cashing in the mem for whiskey. When I plugged in, greedy palpitations jitterbugged through my body, anticipating the rush of DMT. One more fucking thing to choke down. Yuan had cashed in his U.S. citizenship to become the PRC's golden boy, the man who stood up to America and joined the future. The pack rim marketing gurus who adored him had turned him into the cover boy for what being a good soldier meant. But Yuan wasn't just a pretty face, and he wasn't just a little man with anger issues who took to beating on whores while he savaged them. In reality, he wasn't much of a fighter, but by the time he'd nearly washed out of boot camp, he was too deeply embedded as a national idol. He had a brain, though, a big one. He might not have known which end of a gun fired, but he knew a lot about human chemistry and physiology, and during his time at Berkeley, Dreamer had been his pet research project. He had been intent on expanding the applications of mnemonic capture and response, and he'd written several theoretical papers on the concept of body shifting. I peeled back the layers, diving in even further. I could feel the convergence washing over and through me. Yuan, Mesa, Alice, what Alice must have learned and must have known, what I was figuring out. Alice was a devout memorialist. They prized more than anything else the living memory. They cataloged every instance, short-term, long-term, it didn't matter. The memory was God for them, but the human vessel was finite. It could retain only so much information before it degraded, withered away, and died. I dug through Yuan's memories of his research and what he hoped to learn and expand upon. I imagined what a memorialist might do with the information and what kind of implications this so-called body shifting would have on the living memory. Is that what Alice was planning? To use Mesa in a body shifting experiment? To implant herself into Mesa's body? The more I thought about it, the more it felt right. Alice had made an offhand comment about being somebody's daughter again. It hadn't struck me as important then, but as the pieces fell into place, it chilled me to my core. Chapter 17 When I unplugged, I knew everything I needed to about General Yuan, and I believed about what Alice could do with this information. It had all been at my fingertips, all of it. If I hadn't been so stupid, so fucking blind. I cursed myself in my foolishness. Then Alice. She had lulled me into a false sense of comfort and complacency before leading me around in the directions she wanted or needed me to go. Stupid. As I opened my eyes to the darkness around me, I saw Captain standing over Jamie, his gun held close to Jamie's head. He was almost balancing himself on one foot, a grimace on his face. His left foot was light on the ground, too painful to take any of his weight. If Jamie had a mind to, he could have pushed Captain over and made a break for it. I didn't know what I would do if he did that. You get what you need, Captain asked. I nodded. The night before, Captain had told me that if we found him, Jamie would not be leaving with us as a prisoner. 
Captain wasn't there to arrest him. I had known that before I'd even met with him about my plans. Hell, that was why I needed him. I knew I didn't have the balls to execute Jamie. Not like I had done with General Yuan. Jamie was a friend. If I told myself you're killing a man for God or country, it hardly feels like murder. The first time I did it, maybe then I felt guilty. Then I consoled myself, telling myself I'd done it for all the right reasons. Self-defense, for the U.S. of A. Because God wanted me to and would reward me for the blood spilt in his name. Because these fuckers invaded my home and killed my wife. People come up with reasons and reasons carry them through the day. But there are lines, boundaries that can't be crossed no matter what greater good disguises them. Putting a gun to the head of a friend, a man whom I had grown to love and who treated me as if I were his son, and pulling the trigger? That was a different story. That was a boundary I couldn't cross. That was why I needed Captain. Despite all the things Jamie had done and all of the lives he had taken, I still couldn't cross that line. The gun was a heavy weight in my hand, and although it had been warmed by my skin, it still felt cold, obdurate, and strange. Jamie sat there, waiting for it, his cold blue eyes wide open. A small measure of compassion lingered there, along with a loss of respect for me. I watched the divide between us grow, and whatever had connected us in the past was slowly chipped away. I wouldn't save him, but I wouldn't kill him, and his eyes confirmed what I already knew. I was a coward. His eyes drifted away from mine, to a point lost behind me in the darkness. Can I have a minute? I asked. The words were leaden, barely more than a hoarse whisper, but Captain seemed to relax. He gave me a quizzical look, then shuffled away in sort of a hop step into the darkness. I didn't know what to say to Jamie. The words had left me. He regarded me again, more closely this time, with a measure of hope. Maybe he thought I would help him get away from all of this. A last-minute rescue. The image of him towering over a small girl haunted me. He helped her shrug into a shiny yellow backpack laden with explosives, nails, and ball bearings, then sent her on her way, telling her how proud her parents would be of her if they were there to see her. Her large smile spread across her face as she looked back up at him, her clear, bright eyes full of innocence and pride. She reminded me of Mesa on her first day of school, with a similar look and a full smile. Both of our hearts had broken as I left her alone, truly alone, for the first time in her life. That sad fear as it dawned on her that her mother and I couldn't protect her, and we were casting her off into the unknown world by herself. She wrapped her arms around my waist and buried her face in my stomach, wetting my shirt with her tears. Jamie had cast the yellow-jacketed little girl off into an unknown world as well, where layers buried things she had no understanding of beneath the surface, like landmines. My arm rose, stiff and leaden. Jamie licked his lips but said nothing. He stared at the barrel of the gun and gave me a slight nod. My heart raced, sending a deep, thudding throb into my temples and into my brain. I knew that if my finger found the strength to pull the trigger, I could not wrap his death in the flag, for that flag no longer waved. I wasn't saving myself, but maybe I would be saving countless other lives. That notion did not make it easier, 
and still I did not pull the trigger. I tried to be self-indulgent and thought about the direction my life had taken since meeting him, but I had to square that against the knowledge that my actions were my own. I had to take responsibility for the man I had become. He was a dark angel, but the choices had always been mine. He had fed off me easily because I had wanted to be used, to be given purpose, and to be pointed at some cause. The mistakes were mine, all of them, and I found that I could not punish him for my errors or for my self-righteousness. Just do it, Jonah, he said. I found his eyes in the dimness, and he met me straight on, gave me an encouraging nod. If you don't, Captain Will, he said, I'm dead either way. When I finally pulled the trigger, it was from Mesa. She was pressed tightly against me, her tears soaking through the thin fabric of my shirt, cold against my skin beneath, leeching away the warmth between us. The gunshot was booming in the attic. Its echo was dull, but lasting. Even through that noise, the splash of liquid and pulped flesh smacking against the concrete floor was loud. His hand fluttered and twitched on his thigh, but his still open eyes were dead. I stood over him, suddenly calm. My heart no longer raced, and my breathing had slowed to a natural rhythm. The second and third shots were easier. I almost savored them. I waited for the room to quiet and inhaled the stink of cordite through the air thick with gun smoke. When I inhaled, I tasted warm pennies on my tongue. Chapter 18 I went through Alice's empty house room by room, not expecting to find anything. The barrenness surrounding me took on new meaning. The Spartan style of the house wasn't a fashion statement or an inability to decorate. The house was chilly and empty because it had never been home. This was a safe house, a quiet place to lay low, hidden from the world. I stood on the deck, staring out at the ocean in the dying light of day. Even though the squad medic had told him to stay off his feet, Captain stood behind me, propped up in the doorway. His leg was healing slowly, and the squad medic, a guy named Boyd, kept insisting that he sit down. Apparently, Boyd was used to being ignored. As I watched the whitecaps rolling in toward the shore, I recalled Alice rising from the waves, her caramel-colored body slick with water, and how the creases of her skin had tasted of salt. Even though I did not love her, my thoughts of her held remorse and loss that I had not felt for Jamie. You should sit down, I told Captain, pointing to the Adirondack chairs near the door. He shrugged, but sat anyway. One of his soldiers climbed the steps up from the beach, while another came through the doorway where Captain had been standing. His snipers, Crasson and Meyer. We'd all been through every inch of the house, every drawer and cabinet, under the bathroom and kitchen sinks, every nook and cranny in the garage. We searched it all, hoping for some clue, some kind of indication as to where she had gone. Not a single fucking thing. The house was absolutely clean. No personal information, no records, no mem chips, nothing. One of the grunts had even gone through the place room by room with a battle forensics kit, and all he had turned up was a collection of hair, mine and hers. If he found any evidence of our coupling, he kept his mouth shut. No sign of Alice, no sign of Mesa. How's the leg, Sarge? Boyd asked. 
I'm fine, Captain said, although his bravado was lost in his pallor. Boyd eyeballed him, disbelief plainly on his face. He hovered, but Captain grunted and waved him away. Watching Boyd's pathetic ministrations unmoored something in me, an errant thought that drifted through my skull, fighting through the sludge of recriminations and pity. I seized it, trying to churn the depths for his name. What was his fucking name? From Yuan's research, body shifting wasn't as easy as it sounded. It wasn't simply a matter of dumping your memories into somebody else's head. Dreamer did that already, with no discernible side effects, save for the intended ones. Shifting was a more arduous task that required transferring an entire consciousness and supplanting the entire core of an individual with somebody else's. Although the research was dressed up in technical language and ignored the moral implications in favor of strict science, body shifting was akin to snuffing out an entire soul. The procedure eliminated the very essence of life and individuality, turning the host body into an empty husk that could be occupied by an alternate. It was the equivalent of slapping a for-rent sign on somebody's forehead. My blood ran cold at the idea of Mesa being used that way. Alice could wipe Mesa's mind clean, reformat her brain as a blank slate, and set up residence inside her, leaving her own body behind. I had no idea why Alice would want to do this, or why she had chosen Mesa. Her plans were wrapped up in too many other layers, and I was learning how complex and confusing her motives were. She always had an ulterior motive, and she thought several steps ahead, rigging the game to the point where the players didn't even know what they were engaged in. I wasn't sure I would bother asking for an explanation if I found her. I didn't know Alice's level of technical expertise, but I figured that the complex operations of the brain, human neurology, and the ties that bound mind, body, and soul were far beyond her. She would need help. She would need a doctor like Dr. Sanjar Hashmi, whom I had met on this deck after spending three days in a coma. He had injected me with medicines, supposedly to save my life, supposedly for the sole purpose of helping my body speed up its blood replication and to mend my injuries. I remembered him clearly, a chubby man in old, cheap beggar's clothes, his fat fingers probing my bullet wounds, round face, thin locks of wispy white hair clotting his forehead, his bulbous nose flecked with blackheads. I told Captain about my time there and about Hashmi. I told him everything I knew about Yuan's research and my hunch that Hashmi was helping Alice Shi carry out the dead general's research experiments. Did it work? One of the grunts asked. Yuan and a few other postdoctoral researchers had experimented with body switching on cats. They documented the personality characteristics of four felines they had adopted from the Humane Society. Each had distinct personalities, behavior patterns, movements, and habits. Each was truly unique. One was proud, where another was timid but engaging. The third was shy and quiet, and the fourth was energetic and approachable. They varied in age, with the youngest being a small, two-month-old kitten, and the oldest was twelve years old. They'd shaved the cat's heads and bored holes in their skulls to fit them with cybernetic prosthetics that would capture, record, and measure brainwave fluctuations and neurological input and output. They developed small dreamer units that were implanted into each and then set about studying the animal's cognitive functions and memory creation and storage. The cats were divided evenly into a test group and a control group. The test group was injected with a beta blocker called propranolol, which caused a disconnect between emotion and memory, affecting the areas of the brain responsible for memory formation, like the amygdala. So many human memories are linked to emotion. 
It impacts who we are, who we become, how we behave, and how we learn. One of the most powerful emotions of all is fear. The researchers subjected the test group to frightening situations, loud noises, barking dogs, electric shocks, sleep deprivation, and blasts of icy water. They systematically abused and tortured the animals, all while keeping them amped up on beta-adrenergic receptor blockers in order to interfere with how their small brains created memories of those terrifying events. The highly potent mix of drugs was successful, and the cat's long-term memories contained almost zero evidence of the trauma they had been subjected to. Although the Dreamer records captured every instance of harm, their brains did not commit the memories to storage and showed no evidence of ability to recall the instances of fright. The researchers had shown how to prevent the felines from creating new memories, and then they moved on to eliminating the memories the cats already had. Building on years of prior research, Yuan and his postdocs began targeting molecules in the brain rather than specific structures. PKM zeta molecules link the different cells of the brain, creating a rapid, nearly instantaneous network for communication and dissemination of information and responses. This molecular network also controls memory recall that shapes learned behavior. By injecting the test group with another drug called ZIP, the researchers were able to begin destroying the cat's long-term memories. Slowly and persistently, using a combination of drugs, beta blockers, and enzyme inhibitors, Yuan's group was able to chip away at the basic fundamentals of both test cats' personalities. At each step, they recorded the changes until virtually nothing was left. After nearly a year, the two cats were reduced to, for all intents and purposes, nothing more than lumps of fur. They were basically comatose. Then the researchers began transferring memories from the control group into the barren landscape of the test group's brains, rebuilding the networks of PKM zeta molecules in order to strengthen memory retention. They were given booster shots to support enzyme reactions, but feedback from the brain activity registers led them to continue with mild doses of beta blockers in order to make the body shifting less stressful. As the experiment proceeded, the researchers noted that as the memory transfer solidified, the host bodies became more agitated. They speculated that the control group personalities had begun to realize they were not in their own bodies and were lashing out in fear and panic. The cats had been declawed, and that proved to have been a wise precaution when one cat began attacking itself. Lacking sharp claws, it bit itself repeatedly, mangling its paws and wherever else it could reach along its flanks. Researchers sedated the cat and gave it a stronger batch of beta blockers. Eventually, its strange behavior began to subside, and it began to behave more naturally. The PKM zeta molecules took root, and after several months, the control group personalities had successfully implanted in the test group bodies. The researchers then noted that body shifting was perhaps an imprecise term, or, perhaps more accurately, that the results of their research had failed to meet their initial hypothesis. The process ended up being less of a full-scale body shift and more of a hardline replication, similar to cloning. The memory transference was such a success that researchers observed almost no difference in personality between the control group and test group. They spent months documenting behavior and individual patterns and noted no incongruities between the two groups. Each cat matched its alternate, point by point. Their eating, sleeping, and bathroom schedules were perfectly synced, as were the way they walked and behaved. Even the tonal qualities of the test cat's meows had adjusted to reflect those of the control group. Although the test cats couldn't perfectly mimic the sound of their original bodies, the researchers noticed distinct changes in tone, pitch, and frequency. So yeah, I said, it worked. 
Krasin let out a low whistle. Damn, Meyer said, looking at me the way a person looks at somebody close to the deceased at a funeral, unsure of what else to say. I considered how Yuan's research might be applied to human subjects. I tried very hard not to think about what could have been done to Mesa over the last few days. I tried not to think that maybe she was already a vegetable, and that if I ever found her, she would be nothing more than an empty shell that had once been my daughter. All right, Captain said, slowly dislodging himself from the lounge chair and getting one solid foot beneath him, as if the matter were settled. We find this Dr. Sanjar Hashmi and have a word with him. Although Captain was bombastic, finding Hashmi was a difficult task. If the PRC was good at anything, it was limiting access to information. Much of the general population lacked access to the online data stores, and wireless hookups were virtually non-existent. In some fundamental ways, California had been bombed back to an earlier century. Net cafes had been lost to the history books, and strict prohibitions existed on the installation and upgrading of cybernetic implants. Those of us who were indigenous were lucky our new overlords hadn't forced the surgical removal of our implants. Even that was due mostly to the interference of the UN, humanitarian organizations, and human rights groups. Not all POWs had been so fortunate, and scores of people had been unable to escape the clumsy surgeries to neuter their augmentations. Even those who were powerful enough to be considered elite had very limited, heavily monitored access to the net, and their page returns were routinely filtered, censored, and sanitized, if not entirely forbidden by the strict PRC firewalls. One of Captain's tech specialists created his own secure network, covertly piggybacking the PRC's data lines in order to reach a hacker's satellite where he could log into the free net. Once he was inside, the job became a matter of sifting through enormous amounts of data. What should have been a simple name search yielded hits for movies, books, unrelated public profiles for various social media networks, viral videos, shopping lists, and mem recordings. Even after some extensive filtering, we encountered data that was too recent and entries that were too new, a reminder of how much the outside world had moved on. The vast majority of California had ceased to be. A connectivity map laid over the United States would have black holes where California, New York, D.C., and maybe a handful of other cities used to be. That's what we were facing. We were looking for a man lost in a black hole, a void of information. Whatever data trails Hashmi may have once had, a web page for his business if he was in private practice or a staff bio if he taught at any of the local universities or worked at a hospital, were buried under newer, more relevant search patterns. Unless the data stores that may have once kept Hashmi tied into the electronic world were housed in underground server units, those records now ceased to exist. Even finding a cached page was hard, but not impossible. Eventually, we found him. A small fragment of a ghost lost deep in the electronic ether. We unearthed a single cached M-log, which was similar to a V-log, but devoted solely to the sharing of memories and relied heavily on advertising. The site itself was inaccessible, and we had stumbled across what was, for all intents and purposes, a screenshot of a page. At the top was a small, short video ad for a neurological clinic on Wilshire. The clinic was near the VA hospital, and it probably had survived largely on referrals from there. After extracting the advertisement, we found that the names of the staff were encoded in the video's meta tags, which was where we finally found Hashmi. The clinic was in a commercial district, surrounded by moderately-sized white office buildings on one side of the street and larger, newer, glossy black office constructs on the other side. 
The Wells Fargo complex dominated one corner of the avenue, but the building was in tatters. I remembered footage from about a decade ago when, at the height of the collapse, the bankers were attacked in the street by a riotous mob and the building was firebombed by people who found themselves solvent one minute and then homeless the next, their fates sealed in between the span of a breath. We spent more time than I had wanted on plotting our route from our makeshift fort at Alice's house to the clinic and tapping into satellite feeds to gauge PRC troop movements and checkpoints. None of us, me in particular, were eager for a confrontation with the overlords, not when we were so close. Time itself had become a heavy weight, bowing my shoulders while stomach acid burned through my core. By the time Captain authorized a plan, the darkness was infinite and a large orange orb hung in the sky. I watched the broken reflections of the hunter's moon against the waves and tried to still my soul. If I closed my eyes for too long, I saw Mesa her eyes blank and damning as if there were nothing left of her to save. When we finally left, Crasson drove slowly. I sat in the passenger bucket seat while Captain was sprawled in the back, his injured leg up on the bench while he leaned against the door. Boyd sat in the storage area all the way in the rear. Captain had ordered Meyer to stay behind in case Alice returned. He was hiding up in the bluffs, watching her house through a sniper's scope. I was jacked into the hacker's satellite, monitoring PRC movements and watching for random roadside stops or checkpoints that had sprouted along our predefined route. The ride was smooth and the road barren, save for us. Crasson stuck to side streets through largely dark and empty neighborhoods, staying away from the more common, more heavily trafficked routes. Hardly any souls were in sight, maybe the occasional bus whose bright yellow lights shined through the windows, empty save for the driver and one or two elderly Asians. Crasson stopped for the lights and stop signs, intent on not drawing attention to our vehicle. The curfew was lax these days, not as bad as the early days of the occupation when it struck an hour before sundown. But it was still randomly, and oftentimes violently, enforced, so I was careful not to let my attention stray and to keep my focus centered on the retinal heads-up display of the city map. Crescent turned down Wilshire and drove through a desolate neighborhood of empty office buildings, barely distinguishable from one another in the night. Past where Wells Fargo used to be, the pharmacy across the street was a bombed-out wreck, more of a soot stain against the white structure it neighbored than anything else. I squinted past the R-HUD into the darkness, hoping to make out an address as our tracking blip closed in on the destination marker. All I saw were dirty white buildings that would need to be torn down and rebuilt if they were ever to be occupied again. A flash of light off to the side caught my eye, then a buzzing whine drew my attention. Before any of us had a chance to say or do anything, the missile struck the ground behind us. The force of the explosion lifted the back of the jeep off the road, and Captain was sent tumbling forward into the footwells behind the front seat. The jeep crashed back down, the rear wheels gone, with a sickening, crunching squeal as bare metal skidded across concrete. Crasson lost control of the vehicle, and it fishtailed. They were shooting at us, but the bullets were useless. The thick munitions-proof glass stopped the rounds, leaving compressed circular fractures around flattened copper-colored rounds. Crasson tried to recover from the spin, but the front passenger tire popped, sending sparks flying up from the bare rim as it ground against the road. The front of a building came up on us quickly, filling the windshield. I shot forward in my seat, the seatbelt snagging hard and keeping me from going anywhere. My collarbone and waist hurt badly, and the belt stabbed into my neck. 
Crasson winced in pain, but Captain, who hadn't had time to pick himself up from the floor, seemed fine where he was. PRC? he asked. I still don't have any readings on them. It can't be them, I said. Well, if it's not them, they'll be here soon. They won't ignore explosions and gunfire in the middle of the night. We gotta get out of here, Crasson said. He sounded calm, at least. I pulled my gun, racked the slide back, and made sure a round was chambered. I looked back at Captain. He was up and ready to go, a gun in his hand, too. The gunfire was coming from the driver's side, so Captain and I got out first to lay down cover fire, giving Boyd a chance to get out through the rear hatch and come around to our side. Crasson was climbing over the center console to get out through the passenger door. We laid down short, three-round bursts, trying hard to conserve ammo. A short bark of pain nearby meant we'd hit somebody. Come on, this way, Captain pointed toward the building. The front end of the jeep was an accordion against the thick concrete. Broken glass on the ground framed a mangled strip that had been the bumper. Captain shouldered his way through the front entrance, where the door was nothing more than a thin sheet of plywood under layers of graffiti, and we filed in behind him, covering one another. The building's windows were busted, and rough planes of wood had been sloppily nailed over the openings from inside. We could easily see outside through the gaps. We were in the lobby of a small office complex, an open area with stairs to either side going up. An elevator bank sat between the stairs and what I guessed was a janitor's closet, although the door was unlabeled. The restroom doors were missing, and the rooms had been stripped of virtually everything, right down to the ceramic tiles. We hunched down on either side of the windows, peeking out, trying to get a fix on who was out there. Gunfire peppered the building, forcing us back down and away from the windows, but nobody was marching toward us. The whining shriek of another RPG filled the air before crashing into the jeep, leaving it blackened and aflame. The heat touched my face, and I wondered if the boards over the windows would catch fire. PRC, Captain asked again, wanting an update. Nothing yet, this isn't them, it's tongs, I said. He glanced back outside. Yeah, that makes sense. The PRC hadn't arrived, but Alice she had, right down the street, on our side of the street even, close. Boyd, Captain said, take over satellite. I need to know where these gomas shooting at us are. Track their thermals. Your upgrades can't do it, I asked. If they're hunkered down inside somewhere, we won't be able to pick them up. Can't see through walls. Out in the open, that's one thing, but I'm not seeing any of them. We use the eyes in the sky, though. Maybe we figure out where they are. She's got them out there to keep us pinned down, to keep us away. I think I got that part. Thanks, he said. I need to get to Mesa. I can't just sit here. So what are you gonna do? Run down the street, hoping you don't get your head shot off? I need you guys to cover me. This is some bullshit, Crasson said. Just listen, I said. I think I've got an idea. They got a good laugh out of that, but I gave Captain a serious look. He quieted Boyd and Crasson, then told me to fill him in. When I was finished, his expression was sour, but he said, Do it. Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Out on the Fringe as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows 
via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at SerialAudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy.